it has been said that uh, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. Uh, like all good stories, and by the way, this is a true story, so to say that it's a story doesn't mean that we don't think these happen, but like all good stories, there's a tension in the plot. And the tension in the Old Testament is the tension between the love of God for his people and their unloveliness. That he's a God who has come running across time and space to call a people to himself, to bless Abraham, to give the Israelites an identity and a land and a home and a king and to make them his beautiful people, to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet all through the story, the tragedy is that the people turn away from him again and again, and not only turn away from him, but turn to sin. Turn to that which, in, in light of God's own nature, is ugly and untrue and unhealthy. The tension of the Old Testament is, as that quote said just, just a minute ago from uh, Kazo Kitimori from Japan, that God desired to embrace those who are not very embraceable, who should not be embraced. Because it's a story of the Israelites and we are God's people, this is a story of hurt and rejection, not from the world or from the nations, but from God's own people, from we ourselves. It comes in two ways. The hurt comes from the brokenness and the separation of our relationship with God. That though he called us and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your king, your husband, your father, and your friend. That his people throughout history have consistently rejected him. The Israelites rejected him. It says in this very chapter of Jeremiah before us, Jeremiah 31, 32, the Lord says, they broke my covenant though I was their husband. The problem with the Old Testament isn't God. It's not the covenants. It's not even the law. The problem is with the people who broke the covenant. It says in Jeremiah 15, You have rejected me, declares the Lord. It's a pattern we see repeated in the times of the New Testament that we have just read that, that Jesus comes to his people as their king, the most true, good, and beautiful man who ever lived, also the son of God, the king of his people. And Pilate, not a believer, declares him to be king, and the Jews themselves say, we have no king but Caesar. At this rejection and alienation between God and his own people becomes real, becomes visual, Uh, and a sort of natural consequence in the Old Testament in the exile. When God's people are not only separated from him emotionally and relationally, but become physically separated, rejected, that you who are my people have become not my people, says the Lord in Isaiah.
Again, if the story is about not the nations, but God's people, then this is our story, that we also are the ones who have looked upon the king in whom no blemish or trouble could be found and have rejected him. The tension comes from the broken relationship and the separation. The tension also comes because of God's holiness and our own sin, our own ugliness, that we are those who should not be embraced. That, um, that the law drives us to guilt. But look, the law, the law is beautiful. And, and Jesus, as the law, is beautiful. As we heard, he is, shows us humanity as it was meant to be, breathtaking and marvelous, that he lived a life of love, to love the Lord your God with all your whole heart and your mind and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. That is what the Lord loves, and we, we are not those people. He says in Isaiah chapter 1, I cannot endure iniquity. I cannot endure iniquity. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. He is a God who loves goodness and justice and mercy, who loves all those qualities that he desires. And because of that, he says, Ezekiel 5, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them, and I will satisfy myself. There's a part of his nature for which it is satisfying and necessary to destroy, condemn, to crush, to vent himself upon the sin, the ugliness, and the darkness of the world. And that is who we are as his people, those who should not be embraced who have rejected him relationship and embraced the darkness of sin. If the Lord didn't care for us or love us as his people, this wouldn't be a problem. It's because of his love for us that that the tension becomes so great that he desires to love those people who are so unlovable. And within the Lord, this creates... Pain. If you take a look at our passage, I'm going to start um, with verse 20 of Jeremiah 31. Ephraim is, um, well, let me back up. So, a couple of verses before this, the passage begins in Jeremiah 31 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping. For her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel is the one who gave birth to Benjamin of the southern kingdom and also Joseph, whose sons Ephraim and Manasseh were the two largest tribes in the northern kingdom, who by this point have been carried off into exile. And so Jeremiah, as it were, brings Rachel back from the dead to weep for her children. That when she looks out on what has become of her children, her people sent off into exile, rejected, rejecting their God and living in sin. 
She weeps. So when we come a few verses later, verse 20, and the Lord himself is responding, again, speaking of his people, Ephraim. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. The heart, in Old Testament language, literally guts, is what's deepest in your soul, what's most essential in your nature, your inward parts. His heart, in this translation says, yearns for his people. In Hebrew, the word is chama, and it can either mean to make a sound, like the noise of the sea, or like the roaring of animals. Chama can also mean the condition of someone's heart, someone's heart that makes a sound, like the roaring of the sea or the roaring of animals. In other places, these word combinations... The yearning heart has been translated this way. Jeremiah 4, my heart is beating wildly. Jeremiah 48, my heart moans. Psalm 55, I offer my complaint and moan. Psalm 39, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. That's the way... This word is used, the word that describes the heart of God for his people. That because of his love for his people and their rejection of him and their sin, the Lord in his heart moans and groans and yearns for his people. He feels pain for us. The heart of the Lord is a mysterious thing, but he's here given us an analogy of the sort of pain that is familiar to us that we might begin to understand what his heart to begin to know and experience the way his heart feels about our hearts. C.S. Lewis said that if you love anything, your heart will surely be wrung. The only place outside of heaven, safe from the dangers and perturbations of love, is hell. Because in a fallen world, it becomes increasingly difficult to separate love from pain. John Calvin says, Pain does not properly belong to God. In a sense, there's nothing that surprises God. There's nothing that knocks him off kilter. He's been at peace with himself from all history. And yet, because he has chosen to love us, let me pick up this quote again, pain does not properly belong to God, but God expresses his love in no other way. So this tension for God results in pain. For us, it results in shame. We are a people of shame. Not just that we have done something wrong, that we have, by our own action and choice, we have become wrong. 
in the West and Western theology, we talk about guilt and how guilt is a problem for our need of righteousness. And um, our church has uh, a partnership with a church in Tokyo called Grace Harbor Church. And uh, in traveling over there and visiting several times, my friends in Japan have helped me become more and more familiar with the concept not just of guilt but of shame. That in Japan, to do something wrong is not just to do something wrong. It's to bring shame upon yourself, upon your family, upon your people. As I was growing to understand this concept, a professor of mine pointed me to the work of a Japanese Christian theologian, Kazu Kitimori. I read a quote from him a few minutes ago that was written by him in 1946, the year after World War II ended. And this Christian man looked around him from the midst of a people of shame, a people who had lost a war, and not just lost a war, but unnecessarily started a war and destroyed the world and sent their own young people in futile, suicidal missions. He lived in a nation consumed with shame. And from that standpoint said, our reality is such that God ought not to forgive or to enfold it. He has embraced those who should not be embraced. He understood what is true of all of us. That each one of us in this room is a person of shame. Having chosen poorly and hurt other people. That there is not one of us that is not touched by the cloud and pain of shame of who we are. Not just that we have chosen wrongly, we are wrong. And yet there is hope. If we turn to our passage, Rachel is weeping for her children. And the Lord says this in verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. He's talking about the people coming back from exile. But again, remember the picture. Exile is a picture of the separation, not just physically, but emotionally and relationally. Don't fear, your people will return. And so God promises that there will be a new covenant. There are two aspects of this covenant that deal with these two problems of separation and sin. You'll notice at the very last part of the last verse on our page, it says this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That the God who loves his people and yet hates sin will somehow in the future find a way to forgive all sin. In Jeremiah's time, we don't know how this is going to happen. The sacrifices give us a picture of it, that sacrifices in some sense take away sin, but not really, because we have to keep doing them. And when the new covenant comes, we find 
that God is able to satisfy his distaste of sin and his love for people by expressing himself on his own son. That the one who did come and live the way that we ought became the final sacrifice for our sins. That the atonement and the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's distaste for the sin of his people fully and finally realized on his own son. This heals God's pain and our sin. If you want to know what God's love for you looks like, it looks like Jesus on the cross. And if you want to know what it looks like for God to embrace you and adopt you as his son, it looks like Jesus on the cross. And because God was able to fully express all of his wrath in that place, he is now free to embrace you, to embrace me without any conflict or pain anymore. The death of Christ deals with the separation of our sin. The new covenant also brings a new heart through the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The Lord works not only to forgive our sin, but to soften our hearts that we might turn back towards him to end the separation and the running away. And we see that prophetically happening in this passage. If you go back up to the top, verse 18, this is his prophecy of what will happen in the future. I have heard Ephraim grieving. Ephraim says, you have disciplined me. And I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I might be restored. For you are the Lord my God. At the beginning of the work of the Spirit is to change us from those who reject and leave God to those who desire to come back. In a sense, to those who agree with God's own pain in looking at us. That Ephraim desires to be brought back. This phrase, bring me back that I may be restored, can be translated, bring me back that I may be brought back. It's not even that he knows how to come back, but he longs to come back, for the Lord to come bring him back. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Again, the, the work of the Spirit is working in us to see ourselves the way God sees us. To strike my thigh, to beat one's breast, is not just a, an intellectual response, but an emotional response to, to meet the heart of God for his own people. So if you're here tonight, And you feel in your life the sting 
of that shame, of our own brokenness as a people. My friends, one, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life because you don't feel that way about yourself unless he has begun his work. And even feeling that pain is to begin to know life and freedom, to know that the Lord is at work. Secondly, my friends, your sins are forgiven. That that wrath has been satisfied. It's been satisfied in Jesus. And God embraces you fully without pain or reservation. And for us, the beginning of freedom, set free by that embracing, is to more and more hurt like God hurts for the continuing darkness of our own sin. And if you're here tonight and you don't feel the darkness of that shame, my friends, stop running. And be free to be embraced by the one who has come running across heaven and earth to embrace us and set us free from our brokenness. I think that um, I saw someone say recently that, um, that churches that can only celebrate are emotionally stunted. I think that a people's capacity for joy is usually connected with their capacity for grief. And so as we finish this evening looking and receiving our Lord's death and suffering on our behalf, let's experience both of those things together. Joy at his love for us and grief at ourselves that he would set us free and joy again at his love. And let us love the sacrifice for us, our forgiveness, our husband, our father, our brother, and our king, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray.